The Hero's Journey podcast is filled with an abundance of spoilers. If you haven't read this week's book, I recommend you do so, as it will certainly help you follow along. Although, if you're only interested in hearing our take on this story, listen on. And welcome to A Hero's Journey, a literary podcast. I'm your host and judge, Jack, and I'm here with my necromatic neophyte friends. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. Each week, we look at a different book through Joseph Campbell's monomyth. This week on A Hero's Journey, we're going to be discussing Harrow the Ninth, the sequel to Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. And when I say discussing, I really mean discussing. If you haven't read Harrow the Ninth, don't listen. This will ruin the mystery for you. Back out now and come back later whenever you're done. So Harrow the Ninth follows Harrow as she struggles to come to terms with the Lictor power and cannot remember what has happened to her in Canaan House. Her memories are mixed up. She remembers Ortis being with her in Canaan House. And because of this, her powers are gone. She struggles to come to terms with the new politics of the emperor's household and the other older lictors, while also trying to deal with memories, visions, and external threats. Towards the end of the book, Hero is able to regain her memories and has a confrontation with an entity who is trying to take over her body and has been responsible for some of the visions and terrors that Harrow has faced. In a kind of surprising turn of events, Gideon returns possessing Harrow's body and has to face the same geopolitical issues that Harrow has faced throughout the book, while also coming to terms with the fact that the emperor is her father. And then everything kind of stops making sense. I'm still a little confused. Hopefully it'll all be cleared up in the next book. And let us begin where we always start with our call to adventure, which is where God gives you a sword. Yeah, so there are some confusing timelines in this book, if you are not familiar. Um, I think I have everything in about the correct order, so uh, just go go with it. The call to adventure, like Jack alluded to, was when Harold received a sword from God, or uh, remembered receiving a sword from God. And her journey is going to be to become a full lictor, because even though Harold became a full lictor at the end of Gideon the Ninth, she refused that in an extremely strong manner, erasing her memories of Gideon and erasing her powers. Um, so that is our refusal of the call, even though it happens before simultaneously in a, in a like weird manner with uh, our call to adventure. For Harrow's mentor, we can look to Mercy Morn, the full-blown lictor who trains her and... Um, even though they have an antagonistic relationship, Harrow learns a lot from Mercy Morn. Going on to crossing the threshold, Harrow receives letters from Ianthe that she wrote to herself. I think that this is crossing the threshold. There is some danger here that Ianthe might be manipulating Harrow or 
essentially be a danger to Harrow or want to kill Harrow. And this is really where Harrow has to kind of like diverge from her path or has the possibility to diverge from her path and remember Gideon or and uh, gain her full lector powers or continue not remembering Gideon and not obtaining those full lector powers. So for our belly of the whale, I think we can discuss when Harrow first goes into the river with the emperor traveling to his throne. She doesn't display the same powers as the lictor. She gets hypothermia in there because Gideon cannot step in to her body and essentially protect it and regenerate it. So this is a, like the first example of Harrow not having the same powers as of the lictors and sets her down this path of needing to regain them and actively trying to regain them. And at the same time, she's facing a total separation of her known world going to the emperor's throne room. She's never been there before, and there are new dangers in politics to address. So for your call to adventure, um, you've laid out that her ultimate goal is to get these lictor powers. Um, we don't really know um, why God has given her this sword, um, but Harold certainly seems to think it's an important reason, and, and therefore I don't really have the ability, and I think we see this in a lot of our books, to disagree with your call to adventure simply because you've outlaid the ultimate... Uh, because you've outlined the ultimate goal and you know kind of where you want to head and therefore the starting point obviously should make sense. Now, if in the end, when we get to the ultimate boon and we see that the call to adventure really had nothing to do with it, then perhaps that's its own little discussion. But for now, I'm not upset with the call to adventure. So for your refusal of the call, I very much dislike this not remembering Gideon section for Obviously, people who've read the first book and are now reading the second book and, and seem to find her completely not mentioning her, um, it is a very odd situation. Um, we obviously learn that this is due to things that Harrow did to herself, and it's not something she's actively choosing to do. This is something that's, you know, a block of some sort, and as such... It's not something that she ever had the opportunity to make that decision. So I don't think it's a particularly good, uh, good refusal. Uh, so I disagree strongly. We have Harrow, who has become a lictor. And she decided, I don't want these powers. So she removes them and removes this lack of desire to be a lictor. Harrow has reverted back to Harrow before the time of Gideon the Ninth, where she still desires to have these lictor powers. I I like this refusal because of just how interesting it is to me that we've essentially had a refusal by future Harrow that reverted us back to past Harrow. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I just think you then have a hard time saying that the rest of the actions that she's going to take aren't already also predetermined by her future self. And therefore, you have to give one or the other. Like, if you're going to give agency in the refusal to future Harrow, you can't then give agency to current Harrow for the rest of them. Or else you could always just be saying, well, 
you know, she future hero already met the mayor uh, mentor and future hero already crossed the threshold before making all these decisions. Um, I disagree. Well, I, I just disagree. I don't think that Harrow that we knew met Mercy Morn before the events of Harrow the Ninth. And Harrow doesn't have uh, precedence, unlike our most recent hero. So she might have planned for a lot of different eventualities, but she couldn't have planned for all of them. And we know, in fact, that she didn't because things happened that no one, including Harrow, could have expected because they were beyond the science and magic of what she knew. But to phrase Zach's argument in a little bit of a different way, uh, the Harrow who refuses this call isn't the Harrow that's on your journey. So how does... Obviously, within the book, it fits this point, but the character that we're going on this journey with isn't the one refusing to remember Gideon. And then for your meaning of the mentor, I don't know if we've... We've obviously had some mentors who have a little bit of tough love for their heroes. Um, Mercy Morn, I think, goes one step beyond that. She essentially thinks she's a useless child who isn't really fit to be in their company and... Um, in her own company, let alone gods. And she treats her very evidently as such. And I don't know if she provides anything beyond just the basest, here's how you do a thing that you are capable of doing, now do it. She doesn't guide her through any particularly difficult situations, both emotionally or skill-wise that we see in the story. If nothing else by the end of the book we find her extremely antagonistic um but if we're just dealing with the front uh section of the book in which she's supposed to be this mentor figure i think she does at most the bare minimum and i don't think it, it's enough to qualify her as a mentor mercy morn is a reluctant ment mentor but she is like explicitly a mentor she's not as explicitly antagonistic as the saint of duty she does still teach Harrow, even though reluctantly, and even though she thinks that it's pointless because Harrow doesn't have the full electric powers and it's going to die. But Mercy Morn wants to protect Harrow from pain, um, even though she's misguided in this. If we look towards the end of the book, Mercy Morn tries to kill Harrow because she doesn't want her to suffer a worse death by the Revenant. So she she fits the mentor, even though it's in a little bit of a twisted way. I think we need to have slightly higher standards for our mentors beyond the fact that she was just told by God, you have to train this person that you don't like, so do it or else kind of thing. Um, and Mercy Morn being like, fine, I will, in fact, do that thing because God told me to do it, but I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to like the person that I'm training. But she does still impart some amount of, of knowledge and teaching. So um, I could see. Yeah. yeah, I'm giving it. All right. Well, that moves us pretty quickly then to the crossing of the threshold. Uh, your letters from Ianthe are good. They, they certainly take her out of the normal realm that she, uh, she's been in. When we look at our crossing of the threshold, like the field of adventure had heavily has to do with these letters. Um, I want to push back a little bit on the danger side of things. Certainly, Ianthe was a contentious figure in the first book, but we don't really see Ianthe pose any particular level of danger to Harrow through this entire book. 
they have a slightly antagonistic, oh, you know, will they, won't they kind of thing, but they don't ever really come to blows or any particularly difficulty uh, in this book because Harrow has been sworn in to obey and, and kind of be the subject of the Ampi in return for some service that she doesn't know she granted. So uh, I don't really see the danger aspect that you were trying to relate to the Ampi. So you don't even see it in like the first letter that Harrow opens. Which is, is, I'm glad, I'm yeah, glad you went this out. Okay, why well, had nothing else? What do you want me to say? <laughs> and she says to move along, sir. Which why is that? Because really uh, Harrow inscribed her jaw to make sure that she couldn't talk about. Oh, couldn't anything. talk about certain things. Yeah. Yeah, and so if she'd altered yeah, her own yeah, jaw, yeah, that yeah, makes yeah, you plan yeah, on betraying yeah. Harrow. I like your belly of the whale. The first time she steps into the river as a necromancer uh, and as a, a pseudo-lector is something wholly new to her. Uh, it's taken her to a world in which she is not familiar. Uh, I think it hits almost all of the points of a, of a good belly of the whale. And that's going to bring us to the close of our departure with really only the refusal of the call missing. And it's not that it doesn't exist within the book. It's just, at least from my perspective, it's done by a different character, even if it's the same character. This book is confusing. <laughs> Cycling on into our initiation, Alex is gonna start us off with our Road of Trials, where you kill a planet. Yeah, so the first trial that Harrow undergoes is killing the baby Revenant after she kills the planet. They're different things. Um, My bad. <laughs> but this is, again, just her trying to compensate for her lack of lectoral powers by being an amazing necromancer, but still realizing that she needs those powers for when she faces true, full-blown Revenants that are coming to attack the Emperor. The next trial is the fight against the Saint of Duty, Ordis or Gideon, depending on where we are in time. Um, she is constantly being attacked by him because she doesn't have the full Lictor powers. It's kind of a mercy killing, kind of like I discussed with Mercy Morn. And in this, she goes on the offensive against him instead of being defensive. And this just, again, shows her powers and her trying to compensate for her lack of electoral powers. Saving the saint of duty from the body of Cerinthia. And in this instance, she gets some more information from Ortis or Gideon. This road of trials that Harrow takes is trying to learn more and develop her electoral powers, but because there's a literal block there, she can't access them. She's really kind of just developing her amazing necromancy powers like that we already saw her have in uh, Gideon the Ninth. So moving on to the meeting with a higher power, I think we can talk about Camilla here, who appears to Harrow on the planet that she kills. Um, Camilla is a higher power because she has more information about the working of the world than the current state of Harrow does. And Camilla provides her some of that information during their talk. So moving on to the Temptress, 
I think that Harrow's false memories are kind of a temptress to her because they're not allowing her to achieve her full electoral powers. And there's also a small temptation for Harrow to go into the river and kind of give up. And again, that would take her away from her electoral powers that she wants, she desires, at least this version of Harrow desires. So either one of those could be the temptress. The false memories, I think, are a stronger one for me because once a Harrow erases these false memories or moves beyond them, she can obtain her full lictor powers. So for the Atomic with the Creator, uh, we have a god figure. So I'm going to go with that. Um, Harrow has tea with God a couple times, but there's a specific one that I want to discuss a little bit where Harrow has tea with God and learns about Al, the emperor's cavalier figure. Um, that wasn't really a thing when Al was alive, but learning about the protector of the emperor and their relationship, I think is an atonement. For the apotheosis, we have Harrow talking with Abigail in the bubble in the river. And this is where all of Harrow's memories kind of reconcile. And we learn that some of the memories are not implants. They are what's been happening in this little bubble world. And Harrow has actually been experiencing them. And Harrow is faced with a choice to live kill Gideon and take her electric powers or to die and leave Gideon to her body. Um, we know that there is a third choice coming, but these are the two choices that are presented to Harrow by Abigail first. So normally we'd be moving on to the ultimate boon, but because the structure of the story is weird and narratively, uh, and for my like discussion, the ultimate boon fits a little better if we wait to discuss it till the return. So we're just going to hold off on that and only discuss up to the apotheosis for this part. Giving that, we'll take a look here at your road of trials. Um, the killing of the baby revenant on the planet as it starts to escape um, has a bit of a lackluster feel to me because I really don't think that she's developing much beyond the hero that we know from the first book. She's showcasing, you know, an extreme amount of necromatic power, but that's nothing different than the hero we saw in book one. She's not using anything in her arsenal that is particularly lictorish or, um, you know, really evolved from the kind of person that she already is. And that goes doubly with when she's fighting against the saint of duty using the marrow in the soup. It's just showcasing, wow, she's an extremely strong necromancer. That's crazy that she can do those things, you know, having not slept for six days or whatever and, and using just marrow in somebody else's body. But the final one, I actually think redeems her somewhat in that, it was a fairly good change of character for Harrow to save the Saint of Duty from Cytheria. Um, because it's you've got a person who's been trying to kill her again and again and again, and the fact that she chooses to save him is, is a good breaking of character that shows a little bit of a development. But the first two points, uh, I just don't think showcase enough change either in her skill level or in her mentality of how to handle obstacles that she's faced with. 
So I disagree on the point that they don't display her skill level or show a change in her skill level. She, in the previous book and previous to destroying the planet, had never displayed this power before. And we, we know that Harrow is an excellent necromancer, an amazing necromancer, but not that much. And then she would have killed uh, Gideon, the saint of duty, if she wasn't stopped by the emperor. So that is, again, displaying power way beyond anything we had experienced before. Nothing that we had heard of could stand up to a lictor until Harrow did and would have killed one. So Zach, I, I understand your argument that her actual power level doesn't evolve that much through this road of trials, but given Harrow, what Harrow believes her situation to be, this is her attempt at making the change that she's after. So I think I'm going to agree with Alex that she's trying to snap herself to trigger her true lictorhood. And these are the biggest milestones along that journey. So for your meeting with the higher power, you have Camilla. I dislike this for a couple of different reasons. One, I don't think Camilla, and this is something we've talked about multiple occasions throughout several different books. I don't think Camilla's power level is such that she should be relegated to the higher power, even if she's able to give this gift of information. And I also don't think this information that she's giving Harrow is particularly relevant to this Harrow who's trying to attain Lichterhood. Um, if anything, it's relevant to pre-memory loss Harrow, uh, something to do with the blood of Eden, or perhaps that these characters are still alive, or uh, what they're doing with their lives post their the book one interactions. Uh, I just don't think it it really gives her much to work with. It's kind of like, oh, I met Camilla, I gave you know this letter, we had this brief, brief interaction, and then I don't use that information in any substantial way whatsoever for the rest of the book. So I disagree. She does use the information. Part of the information that Camilla gives is not super useful. Like you said, Camilla tells Harrow about the blood of Eden and the threat to the emperor, which good could or could not be useful. But Camilla also gives Harrow a piece of Sextus's bone where he has this bubble. And if you remember in our apotheosis, bubbles come back and are important. So the introduction to the bubble and the idea that bubbles can exist and people can be trapped in them is very important to Harrow later in the book. We haven't really discussed the ultimate boon yet, but it's part of the ultimate boon. I'll only I'll only come against you in that when it does become relevant, the fact that she has some predisposed knowledge of it seemed very unsubstantial to me. Your temptation, uh, I actually like a fair amount. These false memories are very conflicting to awake Harrow. The atonement with the creator, I disagree with. I agree that he is her creator in, in many different ways. I And, and this is one of the big points uh, that we've discussed several different times. For the atonement with creator, all previous steps have been moving into this place. Uh, you know, this is the center point of the journey. I don't think there's enough 
realization on Harrow's part here for this to be the, oh, this is the center point of our journey. This is where I got God to admit this thing and it's going to, it's going to blow the whole doors open. It's, it's a very kind of low key moment. Let me explain a little bit to you about what it's like to be God. I think you're right. I think I accidentally found it as like important for the book and the novel, but not important for the journey again. That, that's bad of me. I should I should be better at this now. <laughs> well, it's it's definitely hard because you want it to be God because he's the creator of the whole situation. Like the, if there's ever been an instance in which our characters directly relate to the person who has created their entire circumstances, it would be this. Yes. It just isn't relevant for her particular thing. Um, which brings us pretty interestingly into our apotheosis. So in this situation where Harrow is faced with the decision whether or not she's going to live or die, which is in direct opposition to whether or not Gideon is going to live or die, um, is a difficult one. And her conversations with Ortis and Abigail, and as well as her conversation with Magnus, who kind of bullies her into the realization that we're in this big mess because of what you did to try to delay this decision. And if you continue to try to delay it, who knows what else could happen. So I like the apotheosis as a realization moment. I like how it's displayed um, in the interactions within the dream. Although I do think it comes after our ultimate boon. And I think now is probably a good time to circle back to our ultimate boon and through the portions of the return that are going to take place and then kind of wrap up the initiation and return of this journey all in one since they're very interconnected. A little unusual, but I think it's what makes sense here. So the ultimate boon and refusal of the return in this book are really connected in my mind. The journey Harrow has gone on has been to become a lictor, and in our apotheosis, Harrow realizes what she can do to become a lictor. This is the ultimate boon. She can, she can take the powers, but in doing so, she would essentially be destroying and killing Gideon. So that is, a ref that is why she refuses this. She refuses to return. She gives Gideon her body, mirroring the sacrifice that Gideon made for Harrow at the end of Gideon the Ninth. I think that's really powerful. Harrow is more committed to refusing the return than to getting the ultimate boon once she has these memories back. Um, and because she sticks with her refusal, we don't have a lot of steps that we don't that we usually would. So, for example, if she had decided to take her powers, she would have had a magical flight back to her body, a rescue from without with Gideon dying, but none of these things happen. The only thing that I think we do have in the return, except for a very strong refusal, is a freedom to live. Because similar to how Gideon was locked away in Harrow, Harrow locks herself away, but she doesn't disappear. She doesn't go beyond the river. She is still there and can be brought back when necromatically or scientifically possible in the next book. 
So I think my primary problem here with your ultimate boon is how wonderful your refusal of the return is. Simply because one cannot happen without the other, but she doesn't actually achieve the ultimate boon. She achieves the possibility to get the ultimate boon, which the whole time we've been saying she wants to become a full lictor. She cannot become a full lictor without absorbing Gideon. She chooses not to absorb Gideon, therefore refusing to return. Perfectly all right, but she doesn't actually become that full lictor. I don't think the option to achieve your dream is achieving the dream. And um, that's the primary problem I have with your assertion. We can delve deeper in, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so to me, this is kind of like when Frodo is standing at the fires of Mount Doom. He, he has the ability to drop the ring in, and he doesn't. Now it's a little different because that's not Frodo's refusal. Frodo's refusal happens after the ring is destroyed. But that's but that's the parallel that I see. It's she has she has the ability to take it and doesn't. I, I don't have an issue with that being the, the ultimate boon in her refusal. The freedom to live because she doesn't have the freedom to live with her lictorhood because she refused her boon. I think I think as a general rule she fits most of the points in the in the plan outlined by Alex up until her boon. And once she has refused the journey that she thought she wanted to be on the whole time, she has lost the ability to adequately guarantee herself any like default points in the rest of the story. And you then have to switch her journey. Her, and because of the choice that she made. So the choice she made in the ultimate boon to not take it means that she can now have a successful refusal, but that she can't get any defaults on the rest. And then if the only one that you want to dig in on is freedom to live because of the now, because her goals have changed, we haven't had too many where the goal of the quest switches 90% of the way through the book. Which is going to bring us to a very... Kin- Using close of the return. So uh, thank you if you're still with us here. Uh, to go back over the initiation of the return and the point that Alex has so valiantly fought for and won. Uh, I am giving him the road of trials because I really do feel like Harrow attempted to evolve into the lictor that she felt like she should be. Uh, she certainly is tempted by what we as the readers perceive as false memories, even if that's not what they turn out to be. They are one uh, one or two of her main obstacles to becoming a full lictor. Uh, she does experience a major apotheosis uh, when she realizes she's in a bubble. And I do have to agree with Alex that she is offered this ultimate boon. And I think this might have actually come up before in a different episode that her rejection doesn't disqualify the moment from happening. I don't think it was the ultimate boon, but I think we've had something similar happen before. Uh, And then as far as the return is concerned, both sides of the argument uh, agreed that on the refusal and the freedom to live. And even if Zach's arguments were predicated on the ultimate boon, not taking place, I don't feel like that's a reason to not award those points. 
which is going to bring us to a grand total of 10 out of 17, which falls below our 12 out of 17 currently setting hero threshold. Yes. Uh, which for me, I think partially comes from the fact that we were examining the majority of this book through the hero's journey and what actually takes place throughout most of this book, rather than necessarily the overarching journey of Harrow, which started somewhere last book and may or may not be finished by this book. We'll find out because sequels, uh, and though Campbell would argue that your hero's journey never changes, it just simply always was what it was going to be and everything gets backdated from that. I think it was much more interesting for us to kind of talk about the book that we read rather than the implied end stuff after the end of the last book and the last climactic 15% of this book. But to our diehard Campbell literalists that have found this podcast and hopefully haven't already turned us off, you should reach out to us at A Hero's Journey on Facebook.com or at A Hero's Journey Pod at gmail.com and let us know. Uh, or you could always hit us up at a hero under, oh, sorry, at a underscore heroes underscore journey on Twitter we're way more likely to see it there. And that's going to bring us to the close on Hair of the Ninth. I really love this book, unsurprising, since I really enjoyed the first one. Uh, it was significantly more confusing than the first one. Uh, we spent a while trying to just make sure we had our timelines right. Let us know if we got those wrong as well. <laughs> uh, I'm very excited to see where the series goes. I do think this suffered a little bit from being the middle child, where we got a practical reset that felt kind of disjointed at parts. It really all came together for me. I'm not a huge fan of second-person perspective uh, in large doses. I frankly don't know anyone that is. But the whole book kind of clicked into place when the twist revealed that the second person is actually Gideon narrating at Harrow the whole place, the whole time. And I don't know, I, from that moment onwards, everything that confused me or felt off in this book kind of fell away. And I was just sucked right back into those feelings of fandom style joy, which is also how the book ended up leaving me feeling. Uh, Zach, what were your thoughts? So I enjoyed this book, but I didn't necessarily like it, which I think is an interesting juxtaposition to have when you're reading a story. Um, I very much liked the first book and everything that it did. I just think that this second book introduced too many new elements for me to like it as a continuation from book one, while still having enough elements that made it overall enjoyable. So I would say worse than the first book, but not something I would say, hey, if you want to check out this particular space opera genre, 
um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a shining example. I think that the uh, interactions that Harrow had in her own mind made it to such a point that the reader is confused, and that perhaps is the author's intent, but it doesn't, again, necessarily make an enjoyable reading experience for the, uh, for the reader. So unlike Jack and Zach, I love the book, and I love the second person, especially. I was a huge fan of the character of Gideon, and I was really sad to see her go in the first book. And when this happened, I think like 10% of the way through the book, I thought two different characters were Gideon, the body and the sleeper. And I also thought that she was narrating. So that was really enjoyable to me. It kept it kept me guessing like I was trying to figure out who the body was and who the sleeper were after it was confirmed that they were not Gideon. And the mystery kept me engaged throughout the whole book. The timelines were a little confusing, but I think we were able to sort them out in the end. And I, I want to reread this book and figure out what references I missed and what time skips I missed. I would say the only thing I didn't really like were some of the references to our current world um, culture yeah i think that that will date the book a little bit in the future but it, it could add something right now so that that's something that i didn't notice as much because i i have not been keeping up with memes so i only noticed a couple things but they could really date the book Overall, I loved I loved the book, and I'm very excited to see what Electo brings to the table. Thank you, as always, for joining us. I have been your God Emperor, Judge, and Host, Jack. And I'm Zach. This is Alex. And make sure you stop by and join us next week as we dive into Aragon by Christopher Paolini. Yay! Oh, thank you. <laughs> Man, it's the, this book is so confusing, we're confused what our arguments are. <laughs>